first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Welcome to Same Team, an LGBTQ sports podcast. My name is Daniel Trainer. I am the host of this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Appreciate your time and your energy and your support. Today's episode, man, today's episode is a doozy, if I do say so myself. I, I think it's one that, at least I hope, you will enjoy quite a bit. So, my guest today is Brad Thorson. Brad is a former collegiate football player. He played football at the University of Wisconsin before transferring to the University of Kansas. He spent a bit of time with the Canadian Football League, uh, the CFL, before eventually finding himself at camp with an NFL team. I will let Brad tell you all of that, and suffice it to say, there's a lot of drama and intrigue pretty much everywhere you look. But, you know, I do want to say just briefly, you know, Brad tells the story of getting kicked off the team at Wisconsin after his sophomore year. And as you will hear Brad say, that was a very difficult thing for him to have to go through. You know, the story that has been out there is that in practice, Brad kind of went hard at a teammate, injured him, was kicked off the team. You know, Brad goes into detail here a little bit more openly and honestly than I have ever heard him do before. And he talks very candidly about what he was going through then. What an angry person he was. uh, What an aggressive person he was. And what a confused person he was, I think, ultimately. After his football career was over, Brad came out as a gay man. So it was interesting to look back kind of retroactively with him to sort of figure out what he was going through during all of these stages of his life and of his football playing career. I just want to commend Brad for being as honest as he was about what happened at Wisconsin because it was not an easy thing for him to deal with. But I think there's a lot to learn from it. And I think he's at that place now where he can see that and understand that. Brad's story takes a lot of twists and turns, maybe more twists and turns than anybody had I've ever talked to on this podcast. And that is, uh, I, I suppose to say... Because of the fact that Brad now is one of the leaders in the world of STI and STD testing for the LGBTQ community. Which, when you take a step back and think about that, a former offensive lineman at the University of Wisconsin and at the University of Kansas is now doing what he's doing now. He has founded a company that is pioneering efforts for at-home STI and STD testing. It's wild. And it's not something that he has just sort of, you know, fallen into. It is something he's incredibly passionate about. And the way that he talks about it, you can tell. And it's, it's really, really inspiring why he's doing what he's doing and the ways in which he's doing it 
I, I couldn't have been more taken aback uh, and, and more honored, honestly, to give him the platform to, to talk about what he's doing because it really is incredible, and it's, it's, a, it's a turn unlike any other. So, you know, I, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Brad is so interesting and so funny, and, and, and you know, to get to where he is now, I think it's a lesson for all of us, LGBTQ or not, honestly, about understanding who you are and taking the time to figure it out. Uh, you know, the things that can happen are pretty amazing. So, without any further ado, this is the same team one-on-one -on -one conversation with Brad Thorson. Exciting! I, I'm very excited to talk to you. It's it's been sort of a long time coming, and you know our our, our sort of paths have sort of crossed uh, sort of serendipitously. It feels like in this in this space. So I'm very excited to have you on. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I um, I'll never miss an opportunity to be on a podcast because I listen to so many of them. Well, listen, dream come true. Now you get to talk about yourself too. Do you like doing that? <laughs> I hope so. The, the the uncomfortable part is talking about myself, but it's oh. on a podcast, so I'm excited. Well, it's going to be great because you have, you have a good story. So speaking of your story, I know a little bit about where you grew up. You and I have chatted before, and I'm, I'm kind of familiar with your upbringing, but uh, give me a little bit more, and for the listener who isn't educated, tell me about where you grew up. Uh, grew up just north of Milwaukee, a um, little town called Mequon. Um middle child. I have uh, an older brother and a younger sister. Um, it was, I think, one of the bigger high schools in, in Wisconsin when I went there. Um, about 400 people in my graduating class. Pretty um, run-of-the-mill uh, suburb, you know, like um, I would say I, I grew up in like uh, everybody was trying to create sort of the, the Hollywood idea of a Midwestern suburb. Uh, <laughs> sure. And, uh, and football was a, a big deal there. Um, so, you know, started playing sports at a really young age. That was, that was a big part of our community in general. Um, and just, you know, had the opportunity. We were in a, we were in a pretty large suburb, um, a lot of money going around. And so there was a lot of, there were a lot of opportunities to not only play sports, but, but, uh, get better. Um, yeah, was there. My parents still live in the same house that I grew up in. Oh man, I don't think, love that. Don't yeah, don't I, I don't think they'll ever leave. They keep um <laughs> they keep sinking more and more money in as like uh <laughs> oh we can't leave. We just we just did the whole new front sidewalk and it's like you didn't need a new front sidewalk. <laughs> but um Well that's such a specific thing though. Like I yeah, I know like having not met your parents, I probably know your parents. Do you know what I mean? Like just sort of being from the Midwest too, just yep. that that couple that stays in the same house forever and spends a bunch of money on their house and says, Well, why would we leave? I, I know who your parents are. Yeah. I mean, they grew up uh in the Milwaukee area. Um, that's their life. That's you know, they they know the Milwaukee seasons, they know, but as the city changes, it's like, um, it's big for them. It's big news. Uh, and yet like Milwaukee fits like in a small part of, of New York city. So right, I know where you are now, which we'll get to, uh, at yes. The end of yeah. This. So I said this to you when we first met, but I, I have a, a bit of a read on, um, 
Wisconsin because of the fact that my mom's family is from the upper peninsula of Michigan all the way on the uh, west side, which borders Wisconsin. So my mom's family uh, is from a, a town called Norway, which is about you know, 10, 15 minutes from the Wisconsin border. So I've spent some time in, in very kind of rural Wisconsin growing up, and I was just back there earlier this year. It, it sounds like you're from a, a bit more of an urban area, but I sort of have a, a bit of a read on what that sort of suburban Wisconsin lifestyle and mentality is like, especially being somebody who, who I'm you know, from the Midwest, my Myself, I would imagine, and I don't want to put anything on your hometown or the people you grew up with, but I can't imagine that suburban Milwaukee is necessarily the most welcoming place for a kid who's trying to find himself sexually. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you're 100% right. I think there are um, people who still live in my hometown who are incredibly progressive, but the norm is, is not that. Um, I think the hard part for me as a kid was always figuring out, it wasn't necessarily, um, that being gay was bad. Um, you know, that, that didn't really have to be said. The, the underlying feeling was like just being different or, or not doing, you know, there was a, um, there was a prescribed path to success and, um, everybody sort of got the playbook. And uh, if you executed on on the playbook, then you would also have um, the life of our parents. And it was, you know, it took me a really long time um, because what my parents did, where they raised me was safe. They gave me so many opportunities. You know, I, I was able to be a four sport athlete and um, have access to a bunch of extracurriculars. And they... Um, they went about as far as they could to give me what looked like the perfect life. And the hard part was, um, you know, it's, it's strange. I talk about it now, but I didn't understand that I was gay. Uh, I didn't have a model or an example of what that looked like. I, I wanted to play sports and I wanted to, you know, I had my friends that I played football and wrestling and threw shot and discus with, um, and I, I felt like them and they liked women. So in my head, I was just like, I must like women. Um, but it also, you know, it came out um, my like not necessarily fitting in. Um, it grew out of a lot of different or man, how what am I trying to say? Um, it manifested in a lot of different ways. Sure, uh, but yeah. ultimately not being able to understand that I was gay while I was there was just sort of a byproduct of a, a city that didn't really want gay people. Yeah. Um, well, so they, maybe, maybe not even want, but, but probably doesn't really even know any or, or know how to even interact with them. Right. Or, you know, unfortunately, um, when you have a lot of people who look alike, there are, it's easy to just apply stereotypes to people that don't look like them. So like my expectation was that all gay men were like Elton John, you know, like, he, <laughs> sure. Um, and so it, it not even having the, the framework in my head to say that I could be gay is, it's so strange now, now where I am, but, um, yeah, that, that community, you know, I don't think anybody was ever trying to, to hurt me or, or do wrong by me, but I do carry some sort of resentment over the fact that like, I was never given the space to figure out, whether I was gay or straight or, or whatever. Well, and I, I imagine, too, that you're living up to so much because of the fact that you're living in this football-crazed 
town where you're kind of the big man on campus, the guy who's going, you know, to the big school in the big city, you must feel like that you had something to live up to a standard that people expected you to be right. Yeah. Um, I found my ways to, uh, act out, but, Oh, tell me about those, please. Uh, typically did not get caught. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I felt like well, you're not going to tell me what that would you do? <laughs> oh man. My, um, uh, I will, let's see. I got caught drinking in high school a couple of times, which like nothing, okay. nothing terribly bad, but, um, had to become like quite the angel, uh, cause they had a, a three strike policy. Uh-oh. Um, so I had to like, now, hold on. From- Can I be, let's be honest. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but the, you know, the big man on campus, the big football player gets caught twice. Is he going to get caught a third time? Uh, I honestly, like they, our athletic director was, was not a particularly, um, like he wasn't fucking around. Uh, and like, I had very much the attitude that I could get away with what I wanted, you know, being a, a big man on campus type person. Yeah. Um, and this was like, you know, uh, end of my junior year that I got my, my second infraction and like, I can't even remember what I was doing, <laughs> but it doesn't, I, I mean, it doesn't matter. I, yeah. I did everything right in the classroom and on, on the field. And so, uh, oftentimes felt like I, I got to have my fun in other ways. And, yeah. um, man, as soon as football was over and I knew I was going to uh, Wisconsin, it was sort of like, um, I found ways to sneak out of the house after my parents fell asleep all the time. <laughs> and I, I told them after the fact, and they were like, how the hell? Like, uh, I came up with clever strategies. Well, I'm not sure they're that clever, but like, um, are you like climbing or are you climbing out bedroom windows onto the roof? You have ropes attached. What are you doing? I was, uh, my, my main thing was my mom would make me give her a kiss when I got home. Um, That's so she got adorable. Her, theoretically smell my breath, I think, but, <laughs> Uh, in the, I would, I would come home, um, open the garage door, uh, come into the, like the, the mudroom area. And then, well, like that time that I would be like taking off my shoes or whatever, I would like quickly get across the house, uh, unlock the, the back door, then run back, go to close the garage door so that you wouldn't hear me opening the back door, go up, give my mom a kiss and wait for her to fall asleep. And then text my friends to tell them to come pick me back up. So, wow, so, quite the yeah. sleuth! I was devious. Um, Good for but you. Again, you know, this was only at the very end of high school when um, when everything was sort of. Uh, this is, had you decided. had you signed your letter of intention at this point? Yeah. So this was so all. So yeah, you, I mean, you're you're done. You're ready to go. You've you've got big plans ahead. You're just trying to have a good time. Uh, totally. And I had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it sure sounds like it. I, I mean, I, well, I don't, maybe I don't want to know what stuff you're getting up to, but I mean, it, Oh, we were a pretty boring town. I mean, um, I mean, you're just going over to friends places and drinking or what are you doing? I'm imagining there's like a bonfire or two involved. Yeah. Well, I, I mean like we, it, it's like, a. Uh, I never watched Euphoria. I don't think it was like that. <laughs> I don't even think though I anything even is though like I Euphoria. Seen it, is, I don't think it was like that. I've seen, I've seen a couple episodes. I don't know who those kids are and where they exist. I don't know if they do. I mean, maybe it's more of like a California thing, but that <laughs> certainly was not my high school experience. Despite the fact that I my first half of my freshman year of high school, I did go to high school in California, but I uh, that, that was not my experience. Yeah, no, this was more um, just like whatever – whatever leftover beer or like uh 
bottoms of bottles we could steal from our parents and then we'd all meet up in a a basement and be idiots. It's very um, classic sort of Midwest. Yeah, very like everything about as I'm describing it, I'm like, man, this is just like a, it's like so varsity blues or yeah, like very, just very a parody of what a a childhood was like. But uh yeah, very Midwestern. So let's talk about Wisconsin. So I imagine once you figure out that you're going there that it's a huge deal and it must have been huge for you and your family and for the school. Uh walk me through that decision making process and uh and then, you know, what happens once you get to campus as a freshman. Yeah. Um, so I was actually originally committed to the University of Minnesota, um, was uh, ready to go be a gopher. They were the only Big Ten school that that had offered me a scholarship. And like a week and a half before signing day, um, maybe it was a little bit more than that, but it was it was within the last couple of weeks. Um, it was Brett Bielema's first recruiting class at Wisconsin, uh, and he wanted um, he had a bunch of scholarships to fill out. And, uh, so they already had four linemen and it, you know, didn't look like a particularly great place for me to go as the fifth lineman, but you get an offer from your home state school. And it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing bigger. And for me, like I, mean, I couldn't have picked have been, the school that yeah. I wanted to go to more. That has to be the dream for you since you were a little kid. Yeah. We had, I mean, our house was like covered in Badger stuff. Um, been going to Badger games, watching Badger football games for, Decade, well, not decades, but almost decades. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just like I, I went an official visit, but like I also knew I was going to go there. Um, I'm pretty sure they knew as well because like what kid in state is going to turn that down? Um, right. So uh, like within the last three days before the quiet period, not, not only did um, I had to my dad forced me to call Minnesota and tell them I was decommitting, which was like, as a 17 year old just felt like the worst thing in the world. Oh, wait, um, you, Oh God, what is that like? That sounds so anxiety inducing. Oh, we were, I think we were in the car coming back from oh, my visit God. to Wisconsin. Uh, and like my parents knew what I was going to do. Um, sure. and they were totally behind it, but like, you know, my dad had to, you know, you're a man now you got to, you, you made a promise to Minnesota and now you got to tell them you're going to break it. Oh, and, man. um, I, I have very little like memories. I I'm sure I just wanted to vomit all over the car. <laughs> my, my dad was probably like dialing the number for me and oh, just handed me oh, the phone. Of course. Um, of course. And the offensive line coach at, um, at Minnesota, uh, was, a, I really liked him. I thought he did a, a fantastic job with, um, the talent they had and uh, they had a, a great run game. Um, and like, it's one of those, you know, y- y- it's always worse when your parents are like, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Uh, that was the, that was what I got back from the the Minnesota coach. And I was just like, fuck, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, um, I don't know what would have happened if I would have ended up there, but at, at the end of the day, there was just no way. I couldn't go back to like see people and say, yeah, I, I could have gone to Wisconsin, but I chose to go to, to Minnesota. Um, because at the time as well, like Wisconsin, Minnesota is like finally started to, to put together some good seasons. But at the time, like Wisconsin was such a better program. And, yeah. and even though it was a much more crowded class, um, I, I couldn't not be a Badger. 
Yeah. So you so you get to Madison freshman year. Is there any consideration in your mind at all uh, about any sort of a fresh start in terms of your sexuality? Is that something you're thinking about at all? Or if not, when does that come into play, if at all, during your time at Wisconsin? Yeah, I um, that's a great question. I thank you so much, Brad. <laughs> I don't know. I it, it wasn't. Um, my biggest concern was, um, so I got an opportunity really early on, uh, that they, um, they had a really weak set of backup centers. Um, the guy that the, the guy that, uh, ended up starting, he took over for, uh, Jason Palermo, who was, um, his dad had been a defensive line coach for there, there for a long time. His older brother, oh no, actually oh, it doesn't matter. Maybe it was a Rayola, but Either way, um, the guy that ended up starting at center and I uh, were were close friends, um, but like all of the people they had to back him up weren't particularly strong. And um, I had an opportunity uh, just because my ability to to learn the playbook so quickly um, to kind of step in as not kind of step in to step in and, and be his backup. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got sucked into football pretty quickly. Um, I had a pretty easy first semester on campus because uh, I came in with a ton of credits and didn't feel particularly stressed about um, taking, you know, taking too much that first year. So um, yeah. as far as my sexuality goes, you know, I was still, I slept with, I, I was trying to do what my teammates were doing. Um, that's always, you know, I, I emulated people that I thought were successful. Um, and I just expected that if I did what they did, um, I'd had, I'd have similar results and like, you know, Joe Thomas was, uh, a senior when I got there who I still think is maybe the best offensive lineman ever to play the game. Um, and so, you know, I, I went to the bars with Joe when he would let me, um, I wanted to emulate his, his behavior. He was dating a basketball player at the university. So like I wanted to hang out with the basketball girls. Um, it really just was something that I, Never, ever, especially at Wisconsin as as like an 18 year old who feels like they've just been thrown into this um, there. They get to hang out with like some of the best football players that they they've ever met. Um, all I wanted to do was just like follow their lead and everything they did. Um, and at Kansas, you know, I, I did have the opportunity. Um, I, I guess I could have started to explore those things, but I think deep down they were so scary to think that I was different or think that I couldn't have what I was told I was supposed to have in the like, you know, get married, buy a house, have kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just questioning that this path that I had started on wasn't the right one or that maybe I wasn't going to like get the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow just kept me so closeted. Well, like even even for myself. Yeah, I mean, you become sort of a product of your environment. And if if you're looking around and you don't see any examples of what it means to be a gay man, certainly one who maybe looks like you, talks like you, acts like you, plays sports, is this sort of larger-than-life type guy, I imagine it is difficult to sort of start thinking about yourself in that way just because you don't see any examples, certainly in your circle, but really sort of – Definitely at that time, you know, we're talking about 2005, 2006, 
in, yeah. in in pop culture, on TV, you know, even just, you know, 13, 14 years ago, that stuff didn't really exist. There, there weren't these sort of examples of what a gay man could be in popular culture. So, you know, when you're looking around Madison, Wisconsin, you're probably thinking to yourself, you know, shit, I, I you know, I, I have to live up to what all these people are expecting me to live up to because, God, I can't imagine that any of them would understand who I really am. Yeah, and I think um, one of the other things that kept such a strong, it was such a strong barrier in my mind is homophobic language is just so core to football. Um, and I don't, I don't think it's, uh, uh, there, there's gotta be a sociological term, but like, you know, we, we, we so casually used gay slurs as not referencing somebody's sexuality, but to mean that somebody was like weak or incapable of doing something. Um, and that's the that's the last thing you want in football, right? Like you you need to be the strongest, you need to be the toughest, et cetera. And so anything correlated with being weak is just something you, you simply can't entertain. Um, whether or not it was really referencing that you could have you could like be sexually attracted to men and still play football, I don't think that was the the purpose. But um, you know, you get it, like. People around the sport all the time uh, are just, you know, don't be gay or, you know, that's gay. We can get more flagrant with our language, but I think everybody <laughs> understands. It was just even letting it creep into my mind that I could be gay. Just it didn't make any sense. And like I look back, um, you know, I, I was always watching bisexual porn. Um, <laughs> there, there's like clear flags. Like I never watched gay porn because that would that would have been gay, but I could watch bisexual porn all the time, and that was fine because there was a woman in it. Um, you know, those were the the lengths that my brain had to go to to keep myself like safe from from doubt. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of people have that same experience. And I think talked about it a lot on this podcast with people. But, you know, it's like when you, um, you know, when you're a student athlete, there's so much expected of you and you're living such a crazy life and you're trying to juggle so much. It's almost like, well, God, now I have to think about my sexuality, too. As a 19 year old kid, it's like, you know, I'm expected to perform on the field, perform in the classroom. I'm traveling. I'm doing all this crazy stuff. It's like. It's almost too much. I mean, it's it's very admirable when people are able to do it and kind of find themselves in college because, you know, I've said before, but the life of a student athlete is one that I, you know, I don't understand because I, I wasn't one um, despite being around an athletic department a little bit. But it it truly feels like something that it, it just must be so easy to push to the back of your mind because you have to focus on so much other stuff. Yeah, it's it's funny, like um... – when I try and look back and add up the time that I was spending, I can't really like put together a sensible schedule. And I think it's also, um, you know, the, all of the pressure, uh, there's so much reward that comes from, from giving more of yourself to a program. So like at the end of, um, when I was a uh, uh, senior at Kansas, you always have to, I, I think this is probably still the case, but um, players had to sign to say like, this is the amount of time that I was required to be here because there's strict limits. It's like, it's something mm. ridiculous. Like you can only have 20 hours worth of practice in season and like eight outside of season, which is just <laughs> that that's just not the case for 
any division one Wait, 20, school. 20, what do you, 20, what a week? Yeah. Yeah. That seems but, small. Right. And so they put like these really, you know, they'll say you were at practice from like three forty five to five fifteen, but the reality is like you got out onto the field and uh you did your warm up and you did some like unofficial individual work starting at like three. Right. Um but like, you know, the timer hadn't started and and the cameras weren't rolling, so it wasn't official practice time. Um there's all sorts of stuff. And I, I don't you know, I, I'm not saying that because I think that was wrong. I really wish the NCAA would just call a spade a spade. Right. Um, it's it's over 40 hours a week for these kids, uh, and they're doing it because they they fucking love it and they want to succeed. Um, and then out of season, you know, like eight hours. Sure, we're we're only in the weight room for eight <laughs> hours, but that doesn't take into account, you know, getting there early to stretch or any rehab you have to do or like all of these other things. If you do film study. Um, and the more you do that outside of the eight hours, the more your coaches see it and your trainers see it, et cetera, like mm-hmm. the more encouragement and, and, uh, positive attention you get. So it was, you know, one of the benefits for me as a student athlete was in those times, I'm sure when I didn't know what was going on and I like, didn't know how to address things outside of my football identity, I could simply just like watch another hour or two of film, mm-hmm. um, study the game, try and understand, Coverage is better, like all sorts of stuff. There, there's just an infinite amount of time that you can delve into um, college athletics, and and I found an escape from having to figure out what was going on with me sexually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we we can talk as much or as little about sort of your transition from Wisconsin to Kansas as as you're comfortable with, but what. <laughs> Because I, uh, I, I, I sort of know the story. You can go into it if you want, but we certainly don't have to. But I, I, I'm more interested in in what that was like transitioning to a new city, a new town, a new environment, and what, what that sort of did for your psyche. I mean, football aside, you know, you get to sort of reinvent yourself a little bit because you're in yep. a new college town and, and you're a little bit older. I mean, did you take advantage of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I could spend two hours talking about, um, my mistakes and, and, uh, the lack of protections that, uh, stupid 19 year old kids have in college athletics, but I'll sum it up to say, uh, you're very rarely going to succeed by telling your boss to go fuck himself. Um, (laughs) that, do you hear that kids? Uh, yeah. Take note. Um, I, the, the honest or the most honest truth that I can tell about it is I almost got to, uh, I I got to travel and play as a true freshman with a team that was finished the season ranked fifth. And, um, I thought (laughs) I had a pretty big ego and, um, I was a pretty insufferable 18, 19 year old. Um, I fortunately had coaches, uh, position coaches, offensive coordinator, um, you know, uh, Paul Christ, uh, who's the, current head coach, you know, I remember him telling me that I, I had, um, I had a possible future, but I needed to get my fucking shit together. And, um, yeah, it took me a while to internalize it, but like I, I did figure it out. And unfortunately I think it was too late for, for Brett. He was tired of the person that I had been, had become my first year there. Um, 
I mean, do you think and, any of that had to do with with sort of the battle that you were fighting about your sexuality, whether or not you were conscious of that or not? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like, um, I'm I I have to have been dealing with like, um, you know, what what's the right way? Like, feeling so much self doubt about myself in my my personal life, and then to have the success, and you know, be able to walk into whatever bar I wanted to, and and like know guys that are getting drafted in the NFL and people think I'm cool when I go to classes where there's 300 people there. Like, um, yeah, so much of that was feeding. It it was, uh, it was replacing the lack of identity and confidence that I had in, in my personal life. Um, and it really, I mean, I was 19 and I thought I was like Heisman level cool, which I was not. Um, (laughs) And I had to, you know, I, I was lucky to have coaches and teammates who like finally got me going in the right direction. Um, but it was, I, I had burned too many bridges and I wasn't willing to repair them. Um, so I just, uh, you know, put my, put my head down and, and kept driving forward and Brett got tired of that. Um, so unfortunately, my uh, career at Wisconsin was ended for me, and that was just like you know, um, it was it was at the time the lowest point of my life. Um, I just I had I felt like I had failed everybody. Um, I felt like I had recognized that I was fucking up, and I fixed it, and uh, quote unquote fixed it. <laughs> Um, and that I was doing things the right way and it just, it was enough. Like I could never do things right enough to get back on the head coach's good side. And then to have him just tell me like, you're not playing at your home state university anymore. Like you're, you know, when you went back to your high school and everybody wanted to talk to you about what it was like to be a Badger, like nobody's ever going to ask you that again. Um, there's a tremendous amount of shame and just, I like, I didn't know what to do. Um, I was really, really fortunate that um, I had gone to a great high school that uh, I had left with tons of AP credits. Um, I was able to pick up a bunch of uh, extra courses and and get myself into a position where um, I could graduate. But uh, it left me in a weird spot of finding another place to go to school. And um, it's, it's not easy to explain to football programs uh, why you got kicked out. And, uh, so had to go through God untold number of programs, reach out to, at, at one point I was reaching out to the offensive line coach from Minnesota who I, <laughs> Hey buddy, <laughs> two, two years previous. Remember me? I just told him. Yeah. Um, what, is he so like, had, what is it? He's like, no, uh, he had moved on to, um, South Dakota state, I think. Okay. And maybe it was their head coach or something. Um, he was interested. He, he he talked to me for a little bit, but uh, at, I think I think that was probably not something that he was um, overly excited about. Like, sure. if it worked, it worked. If not, um, but yeah, had to like, you know, I had to rely on so many people at Wisconsin too. After I got after I got let go, you know, the the um, the uh, graduate assistants being able to like grab me some tape. And, uh, and slide me a CD on the side because um, I needed something to send to these schools. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, they did it because they're 
fucking good people and they wanted me to find a new home. Um, but they were also risking their own job by helping me out. Um, so just like a lot of hurdles as a 19, I think it was 20 at the time. Um, and also just like scared that I wasn't going to find a place to play football. And I was going to, that was all I knew. That was everything for me. Um, and I was fortunate enough to find a couple schools that were interested, um, and ultimately ended up at Kansas because, uh, they were able to, to get me into a graduate program on really short notice. Um, and it was still Midwestern. Uh, so it felt safe. Right. It was, it I mean, was, was, was this the first time that you had, I mean, I assume it is sort of lived a, a little ways from home. I mean, a different state at least. Yeah. I had no idea how to do my laundry until <laughs> 20 years old. And I mean, only, I learned, yeah. Well, what were you doing your first two years at Wisconsin? Like waiting for my mom to show up and take oh, a sure, sure, pile sure, yeah. of laundry well, how, home how and bring far, me. How far away is your hometown from Madison? Like an hour and a half. Okay. Um, yeah. And they were up there. And they would have come whenever I invited them. But like they were up there every two weeks for a game or sure. uh, my aunt and uncle live there. So they, you know, <sighs> I it was so good for me in hindsight to get out of Madison as like in the process of growing up because um, I moved into like a, in Kansas, I lived in like a dorm suite that had like a kitchen in it. So suddenly I, I had to like buy food and learn how to, I mean, I didn't know how to cook, but do some food preparation. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that I would have really been forced into doing that just because my mom is is too good to me sometimes uh and I know she would have just goes. what's that i said i know how that goes yeah um so getting to kansas was you know it, it was really hard uh on me emotionally but it, it ended up um it ended up turning out really well uh it was and like you said it was an opportunity to reinvent myself i went in you know initially for the very first year I was there. I was, I was very quiet. I was very like, try to stay under the radar. Um, eventually I got back to my, like, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe being a little bit too loud and obnoxious, but, um, <laughs> you found yourself. It, yeah. I, I found myself again, uh, at least part of myself there. Um, and really love my time in Lawrence. It's a, it's a, it's a good town filled with good people. Yeah. I mean, I've never been to Madison or Lawrence. I would love to go to both. I mean, Madison has always been on my list of, of places to go just as a city because people rave about it. I'd love to go for, you know, a football game. I'd love to go to Lawrence for a football game or a basketball game or something. I mean, there's, you know, those are two great college towns that I think are pretty stereotypical places for people to kind of reinvent and find themselves. It's funny that you were able to spend a couple of years in both. Uh, yeah. I mean, Madison is significantly crazier. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and a much better football pedigree. Um, I would say, you know, you can go watch a, a game at Memorial Stadium in Kansas, but uh, you, you should pick up a basketball game if you go down there. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, what, what was that transition like coming from Wisconsin where you were on, like you said, like one of the best teams in the country to going to a program like Kansas's, which isn't quite as esteemed? Was that sort of a, a difficult transition? It was a weird time to go to Kansas because they had just won an Orange Bowl. Um, right. I have a bit of a, like the stars aligned. They went 12 and 1. Yeah. Um, there was a. 
there were high expectations there and, and there were good players, but it certainly wasn't the same type of, um, there's just, there, there was like an expectation, um, at Wisconsin that like wasn't exactly there. So, um, it was, it was also pretty different that we went from being, you know, everybody knew who the football players were at Wisconsin, um, as far as a, a student body went and the basketball team at Kansas was like infinitely more famous amongst the student body than us, which, yeah. um, that's a weird, like we had such a great relationship with the basketball players at Wisconsin because, um, like they loved us and they loved hanging out with us. And at, at Kansas is just, um, it's a different level of a basketball program. And yeah. those guys go on to play in the NBA, like, you know, a couple every year. So, um, there's a reason that the people fawn over them. Yeah, um, it's a different thing we, sure. we made ESPN. I was not a part of it, but my first year there, we, uh, like a straight week of brawls between the football and the basketball team kept erupting. And like the iPhone was out. So there was like Twitter videos and I don't know. It, it just like, it kept happening. Oh man. I don't remember this at all. Oh God. It was so ridiculous. Like one of the Morris twins, uh, ex-girlfriends was like going on dates with one of the football players. And so there was, I can't even tell you, like, I'm sure I'm using wrong names or whatnot, but like (laughs) you had like six basketball players show up to fight a football player without realizing that within a couple blocks, there's like 20 more. Um, so every time one of these things, one of these like confrontations would happen, it was always so ridiculously lopsided (laughs) and yet it kept happening, uh, until our athletic director, like forced us all into a room and just, uh, berated us for like two straight hours. Yeah. Uh, Cause it, it, it looks pretty bad when like ESPN for the third day in a row <laughs> is playing student clips of basketball and football players fighting. Oh, uh, I mean, I need to look these clips up. That sounds pretty entertaining. I'm sorry you had to yeah. go through that, but, uh, you know, for me, I'm <laughs> once we're done with this, uh, this podcast, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so uh, I was not involved in any of them. Okay. So. Yes. Just, just for the record, we have that on record that you were not involved. Yeah. So, you know, as your time at Kansas is coming to an end, obviously, you know, there, there are big decisions about what your future is going to be. You know, as you, as you wrap up there, walk me through what that process is like figuring out next level stuff, not just NFL football stuff, but also just about your life. And when you're done at Kansas uh, and you're looking toward the future, it's got to be pretty overwhelming, right? I mean, when you have to figure out, all right, is the next level going to happen here or do I have to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, I knew I, I had a much better junior season than than senior season. I played with a broken foot, and so my prospects were not where I wanted them to be. Coming out um, was still getting enough attention that I knew I had an opportunity. Um, got to play at a senior all star game, um, and really spent. I was able to. I graduated in December, and so I moved home. Um, maybe not the well. Uh, living at home at 22 is um, it's it's not the easiest thing to transition from like yeah. your college life of freedom to suddenly not that uh, my parents like were anything bad but um, you only want your mom checking in on you so many times in a day. But so, she's also um, doing your laundry again, so yeah, that's true. She did she did do my laundry, and she also uh, whenever any of her kids are coming home, she 
stocks the fridge to the point where like oh. the door hardly closes. Oh, your um, mom should meet my mom as long as they get along swimmingly. <laughs> they're they're very Midwestern. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it was it was. I I knew I was going to get a shot that I was going to end up in a camp. Um, I didn't know whether or not uh, I'd get drafted, but um, I was pretty committed to to seeing it through. Um, I felt like. I had done the work and and had a little bit of a disappointing season, but knew, you know, I, I had at least enough skill set to end up at a camp. And um, so unfortunately uh, it was the year of the lockout and the, the draft came and went and um, I was not drafted. I got a call, a couple calls. Uh, the saints called me in the fifth round to tell me they were going to take me. And um, I stupidly told like so many of my friends, <laughs> I was like, you got to watch. It's going to happen. And then they took like two linebackers. Wait, what, uh, they, so they take... lied to you? Well, I mean, like as I came to understand, like it, it's very likely that I was like on their draft board and they were thinking about me. And then at like at go time of taking the pick, they just ended up um, going defensive, uh, taking a defensive pick. Um, okay. Apparently, apparently pretty common. All um, right. All right. But also, like, one of those things where, like, I was sure this thing was happening. And then not only did I not get drafted by the Saints in the fifth, uh, I didn't get drafted at all. And we immediately went into um, – they they weren't allowed to negotiate with players. So, like, I was hoping to be a priority free agent um, but didn't hear from anybody, didn't know how long the lockout was going to last. And so I moved back home with my parents in, like, mid-December um, – <laughs> And the lockout went all the way to like early August, late July. Yeah, uh, which is a really time, long time to live with your parents without any sort of life plan. Right. Um, uh, I mean, that's yeah. That's that gives me anxiety just thinking about it. Sitting around, just sort of waiting to see what you're going to do. I mean, how did you fill? Yeah. How did you fill your days? Uh, we would we. So I, I was lucky. I, I worked out with like. Um, JJ wasn't out that year. Uh, there were like five or six of us um, that were working out together at a gym. Um, and so we would like show, we would work out for like five hours, but not, we would put in like an hour's worth of working out over five hours because nobody had shit to do. <laughs> uh, so it was like, we'd show up to the gym at two or excuse me, 10. Like we'd like take a break and eat in the middle and then be done by like three. It was ridiculous. Um, it sound like the worst yeah, life. It was, it was like workout, you know, try and do as much as we could. Um, everybody was like done with combine stuff. So it was all just putting on masks, eat all the time, workout, take Epsom salt baths, uh, watch a shitload of Netflix. Like that was my life. Um, wasn't really drinking a whole lot cause didn't know when the lockout was going to end. Didn't know like when I was going to end up in camp. Um, so it was pretty boring. Uh, yeah. And it just went on and on and on. Um, and then one day, you know, like the the NFL Players Association and the NFL announced that they're – it looks like they're finally going to come to an agreement. Um, I got a series of calls from people like saying, you know, hey, I want you to have my number – we're not really supposed to be talking, but like we think this thing is going to end and um, we expect to call you uh, along the, the Saints line. But um, 
that was like really reassuring to know that there were teams that were interested in signing me and I hadn't just spent yeah, just like nine, nine months just hanging out or eight months just hanging out. Um, and then they announced the lockout ended. Um, and like, I can't remember what was going on. I was at home. It was like 6 p.m. at night and I got a call from Arizona and the guy said they wanted to offer me a priority free agent spot. And I was like, oh, wow, that's super exciting. Like, how long do I have to think about it? And the guy literally was like, when I hang up this phone in 10, 9, No way. Yeah. And so I looked at my dad. We had had done all this work on um, depth of of offensive lines at different teams. And Arizona was a a good team for me based on the style of play. Um, At at 6'4", 310, I was a smaller lineman uh, and so needed to rely on my, my quickness. Um, and so the West Coast offense at Arizona was good for me. Uh, we liked um, Russ Grimm, the offensive line. Like we had done a bunch of work. And so I just said yes. And then the guy was like, great, somebody will call you. Um, like five minutes later, I get a call from some woman who worked there who had like booked my flight out. And I was leaving. I was leaving in two days to start camp. Um, wow. And that was it. Uh, so that was a pretty – it went from being like nothing forever for right. eight months. And then in a matter of five minutes, my like the lockout ended and I was signed to the Arizona Cardinals and um, it was a pretty wild experience. Um, yeah. So what happens? So what happens when you get to camp? I, I sort of know, but for, uh, for people listening, walk me through what that experience was like. Yeah. Um, I actually, I was, uh, I was really happy with my, my brief camp performance um, <laughs> was felt like I was in great shape. Um, really was I like I was in a great position uh, compared to other linemen in that it was a it was a pretty complicated playbook. Um, and if it was tough for me to pick up, like it was really hard for some of these guys. So I uh, felt like I was I was doing pretty well. And then like a week and a half, two weeks in, um, we're, we're running on the field and I feel my foot break. And I, I had previously broken my foot um, before my senior year. And I turned to uh, uh, one of the like, I don't know, he must have been like a 10-year vet. And I'm like, yo, man, I think I just broke my foot. And he was like, no, you'd be in a lot of pain if you just broke your foot. You're probably fine. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I just broke my foot. And uh, because of the like, the NFL can be so um, – They'll look for any reason that, to like say that a guy wasn't injured or, or an injury wasn't that bad. Um, and all I wanted to do was to keep playing. And I, I just like wanted to figure out a way to get through. I don't know how I was going to get through a broken foot. But uh, this this like elder statesman lineman just like pushes me on the ground and starts screaming. He broke his foot. <laughs> uh, and he was like, don't get up. Stay on the ground. Make them bring over a, a – um, cart to take you off. So I got taken off. They did the x-ray and, uh, the, the doctor that came in, like, thank God, I I can't remember this guy's name, but they told me there was like, yeah, it's broken. You know, we can let it heal, but this screw in your foot is just never going to hold. And you're going to keep dealing with this. And if there's any ever damage to the screw, like you're fucked, we're going to have to pull your bone out of your, like the, we're going to have to remove a bone from your foot and you're going to walk weird for the rest of your life. And I was like, and he's like, so you, you need to have surgery. And I was like, no, I think like 
maybe we should let it heal. And he was like, no, I wasn't giving you an option. Like <laughs> you're done playing football this year. Uh, like you need to have the surgery. And if he had, if he had not been so blunt, like I would have tried to figure, figure out a way to go back out on that field. But right. um, it was like, it was like a matter of no time. We did a, we did a second opinion uh, with um, Dr. Andrews in, in North Carolina, who's like, the, the orthopedic God of the NFL. Um, and he came back with like, he, that somebody at his office spent all of three seconds looking at my x-ray and was like, yeah, you got to pull this screw out and put a, put another one in. Um, so that was the end of, you know, I, I ended up in, I was rehabbing for 14 weeks, I think. Um, yeah, it was, it sucked. Um, so I was doing rehab, um, just trying to stay like as loosely a part of whatever was happening in Arizona. But like in my mind, I was still a Cardinal and their mind, they were like, God damn it. When is this guy going to be healthy? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I finally got cleared, it was just, it was like a straight up business conversation of like, where do you want your plane ticket to? Like this, your, your journey with Arizona is over. Wow. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, at that point, do you know, like, is that a definitive end to any sort of NFL career? I mean, how does that, how do you process that from, from that point on? No, I, um, I wanted to, well, I, I tried to get a bunch of workouts. I talked to a bunch of teams. Um, the same opinion was, it was pretty much generally like, we're not taking a chance on a guy that breaks his foot twice within a calendar year. Um, so I had a choice to, if I wanted to keep playing, go up to Canada or or play arena football. Um, and the negative side of playing in Canada is you have to sign a two-year contract, um, whereas arena, you know, I don't know, they pay you in hot dogs or something. Um, <laughs> Poutine, I think. Yeah. So uh, I ended up going to Canada. It, I, it became really clear that if I was going to have to spend two years, I was in Regina, Saskatchewan. Um, as they pitched it only two hours north of Montana, which <laughs> Woo boy. Sure. yeah, I'm, I'm pumped guys. Well, um, hold on. I, I, I mean, in my mind that that's not that different from sort of suburban Milwaukee. Am I wrong? Oh no, this is like, you're in the plains. Our first practice was like middle of April and it was like sideways sleeting. Yeah. Um, it's it was it's a small oil town, very conservative. Uh, it just was not. I knew I was making a tenth of what I made in the NFL, and um, the like most experienced Canadian lineman we had had been playing for seven years, and I think I was on like my sixteenth or seventeenth year of football. Um, and it was just one of those things where like a combination of um, being tired of just I had been hurt for like two and a half years. Like I, when I was training for, for, to, to go to the NFL, I had enough time away from football, um, to sort of heal up, but I just always felt kind of like shit was not getting paid enough. Did not want to be in Regina. And, uh, really it was, it was, uh, it was hard. I'm sure I cried when I like realized that football was over, that if I left, uh, Canada, then like. There was no more. There was never another game of football in my life. Um, but it also was a point where, like, I didn't want to be there. And I was – I didn't, like – none of the guys that played – we had some guys from from the U.S. that played, like, 
big time football and and could relate. Um, but a lot of it was just like, these aren't people I want to hang out with. This isn't a place I want to live. Not saying anything bad about any of them, but just like it wasn't for me. Um, but it was also like to this day, I still feel in some ways like I failed, which is ridiculous because, you know, I got, I got farther than, um, I think anybody ever expected me to. Um, but I had higher expectations out of myself and to leave Regina to just be like, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a hard conversation with them. It was just like, guys, I'm not doing this. Like I'm going home. Um, but for me it was like, man, everything you thought you said you were going to do, like for whatever reason, you know, signing, signing that contract and going to camp didn't feel like enough. And, uh, and ending it in Regina didn't feel particularly uh, incredible. Yeah, that has to be a pretty interesting, sobering place to be. But based on your story, I mean, your career ends, and then you get to really sort of fully thinking about your sexuality, right? Yeah, uh, get to thinking of it. I was <laughs> um, I was back in Kansas City pretty shortly after then, maybe like – Four or five months, I had moved back to Kansas City. And you're, I you're got how old at this point? 23, 23 or 24. Yeah. Um, I think I just turned 24 and was living um, with some friends, um, basically basically living like uh, college life again without football, um, which <laughs> – not great for your body when you're like it's when you stop working out uh you know a couple hours a day and you decide to eat cheetos and drink beer all the time uh not a not a particularly i don't know anything about that life (laughs) um yeah moved back there and uh was at a friend's birthday party and long story short um her friend gave me a ride home and, um, he ended up kissing me and I, we, I don't know how long we made out for, uh, but I had like, I came to and just freaked the fuck out and like got out of the car and just ran. Wait, um, how, hold on. How does this happen? It's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I still don't totally get it. Um, he was like telling me what a, a nice person I seemed like. And then he thought I was attractive and that he'd never kissed a guy before. Turns out that wasn't true. But um, ooh, ooh, okay. that he wanted to, to kiss me. And this is I a just, juicy story. Uh, it was like enough things that happened in my life that I think I like I was finally ready, ready to let my guard down. Yeah. Um, but then when like when like my scared football brain got a hold of my conscience again, I was like, oh my god, I can't do this. And, uh, again, like out of a, a teenage movie, I just like got out of the car and ran, um, <laughs> which, you know, wasn't the best response, but, uh, I did end up dating that guy for almost a year what? after I no. finally, yeah, after I finally came around to like, you know, and like I was so in the closet. Um, so as far as dating goes, it wasn't exactly the most healthy relationship. Um, uh, the first ones never but, are, are they? Yeah. And also, like, God, I sucked. I would tell him that I was bisexual. Like, I just, 
Yeah, but I mean, I think uh, I, I think that's a pretty common trope. I mean, certainly one that gets talked about on this podcast a lot. I, I think that's that's a pretty common way. I think, especially for somebody like you, to kind of dip your uh, dip your toes in a little bit. Yeah, and um, I mean, I can't get over the happened. I can't get over the fact that somebody kissed you. You got scared, ran out of their car, and then they still wanted to date you. Right. Uh, I felt really bad about it. And he was friends with, with some of my friends. So like, you know, part of me was like super excited. Um, but another part of me is like, I got home and I like jumped into my bed and pulled the covers up over my head and was just like sure that this was the thing that was going to like end everything. And all my friends were going to hate me. And so I felt like I had to make good on it. And, um, yeah, I just like, I texted him and I was like, I, I'm sure I did that thing where I was like, oh man, last night was crazy. I don't even remember how I got home. <laughs> oh, Brad. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't remember and, running uh, out of your car after you kissed me. I don't remember that yes. at all. How does that, so how does that progress? Like, it, I mean, do you guys like start dating right away? No, it, it took a while. Um, I, I, we had enough friends that overlapped that, that I kept running into him and, um, you know, uh, he put up with whatever messiness I was going through. Um, so, you know, I'm thankful he was patient with, with my nonsense. Um, but, uh, eventually like, I don't know if I ever called it dating while we were dating, you know, I always had to keep things at an arm's length. So like I had some way out and, um, I don't really blame him, uh, for, I don't blame him. We, we grew apart. Uh, cause like I wasn't emotionally mature to be in a relationship with a man. Um, and when he was done with, when he, when he was done with my closetedness, uh, I just like, it was such a low point. Um, I was convinced I, I didn't have anybody to talk to. Uh, I finally was able to say I'm gay into a mirror looking at myself, which felt like this just unbelievable fear to, to watch myself say those words, um, because I was so scared of what that meant and, and what could happen. Um, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Like I but felt so this like whole time, I mean, you, you guys have all these mutual friends, right? Are you not discussing it with them or is it a secret? It was a secret the whole time. Oh, um, and you guys are like at parties and stuff together. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't really come around when I was with, um, football friends, but he was a college athlete. Um, so there was like, there were nobody ever had like a reason that he and I shouldn't have been hanging out. Um, right. And well, I'm that's, sure, a lot, that's a lot of pressure too to have to like sort of keep up appearances and make sure you don't let anything slip. Yeah. I mean, Oh my God. Like just the, if, if I could tell, I know that I know that coming out isn't easy for anybody. And I know that there are real repercussions, but like, the struggle that I went through just to hide this thing that I, I didn't want to talk about because I was scared of it. Not because other people were, um, it's just, it was, it was not fucking worth it. It sucked. And every time, because I, I didn't have any friends to talk to about relationship problems. I didn't have, when, um, when we broke up, um, I just like, I didn't think I could talk to my, teammates i didn't think i could talk to uh like work colleagues i didn't think i could talk to my parents and i was just like if i can't talk to somebody 
in the most miserable time of my life. Like, what the fuck am I doing? And I, I really had, you know, I, I don't think, um, I think suicidal thoughts is, is a strong phrase for what I was going through, but like, I just didn't get what the fuck I was doing with my life. Um, I was so sad and so alone. And that was really the impetus for me. I came out to my parents, um, you know, this, this guy obviously knew, but, uh, my parents were the first people I came out to, um, almost because like, I felt like I, I had to come out to somebody if, if I didn't tell somebody and know, you know, they were either going to react, they were going to react some way, but I didn't know how, and I needed to figure out how people were going to react to my coming out so that I could figure out like what the hell I was going to do. Um, and that's like, it's a, it was, I was in, you know, I was still very deeply in a career transition, figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, bringing out where I wanted to live, figuring out like, well, I was pretty sure that I wanted to date men at that point. Um, but all of those things were, were really in flux. And I went back to the like stable people in my life and was kind of like, listen, these two have been here for me getting kicked out of Wisconsin for like <laughs> all of the bullshit that I've done in my life. Like if they abandon ship, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to find out. Um, and I got really lucky. Like, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say I got really lucky. I should have known that they were always going to love me. Um, they, it's a long story of, it's a long story of me not being able to tell them and then just finally like yelling it at them for no reason. And they were really confused. They were like, why did you just yell you're gay at us? Um, but after, after I was able to tell them or yell that at them, like my mom, my mom was immediately like, Oh my God, we can go shopping. And I was like, classic. That's, that's not how it works. And then uh, my dad was like, uh, I got a new bottle of Maker's Mark. Like, do we celebrate? Or... Oh, that's the best. Yeah. Um, did, they so have, I got lucky. did they have any idea? No. Uh, they were – they actually for like months afterward were kind of like, are we – like, is this a long con and he's like really <laughs> fucking with us or something? Um, <laughs> so – and I like I did not – I was still very, very, very – uh, worried about bringing anything that was non heteronormative around my parents. Um, mm. so it was still always, you know, uh, just like traditional masculine things, um, and never any men. Um, so for a long time, like they saw nothing different about me. Uh, so I can understand how they're like, wait, we don't know what gay people are like, but Brad just seems like the same person he's always been. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure for your parents and then eventually for other people in your life, it's a learning experience about sort of the spectrum of what it means to be a gay person or, or a part of the LGBTQ community. You know, I say in this podcast a lot, I mean, the the differences in the community are, are the same for straight people, you know? There there are just as many different types of gay men as there are straight men, I think. And, and you know, I, I talked to all of them on the podcast, and I think when somebody like you was able to show a different side of things to uh, people who haven't been exposed to it as much, I think that's such an easy way for them to sort of understand it initially and then to open themselves up more fully as they begin to to learn more. Totally. And, and, you know, the one thing that I've had to learn is like, um, I had one singular identity forever, uh, or like, 
you know, what I presented as is like, it was football player first and foremost, um, which is still, you know, like I love, I should not be playing rugby, um, <laughs> but I still love contact sports and, um, you break your foot again. No, now it's like my hands. I'm always dislocating fingers. It's <laughs> God. I went in like three weeks. No, it was just longer. Anyway, second to last game. Um, I have been trying to play less and less minutes. Uh, so I came off the bench and the opening kickoff, I went to tackle a guy and I dislocated my finger Great. and I put it, I put it back in. Um, oh, and then, great. Had it. yeah, you know, like I'm used to those things, but our coach was like, Jesus fuck. You can't even make one tackle without <laughs> dislocating a finger. Um, yeah. I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to have to pick everything up with like both my palms in my future. <laughs> um, which is not great, but um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I think one of the the interesting parts about when you go from this singular identity and, and grow to uh, just as a person in general, but like uh, a queer person, you know, I'm able to have a bunch of different sides of me that that range from rugby player to person who has like a dozen wigs and a bunch of heels in their um, apartment and like. You it, do? None of it seems to make sense, but it doesn't have to. What do you have the 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 wigs and the heels for? Oh man, I love they're just uh well, the wigs are partly because like our rugby team likes to have wig parties and they just all get left here. Oh sure. Um so they're pretty gross. Uh and the heels are just like it's such a juxtaposition of like it's the only thing I uh that'll change. And so I go from six four to six ten. Um, and it's, I just like the, the like mind fuck that it sends people through being like, what's going on here? Wait, are you like, where are you wearing these? Like out in public? Oh yeah. Like, uh, pride oh. events. Like when we do fundraisers, um, they're always, I wore them to a wedding. I, I, I get these like, uh, pink saddled six inch heels. They're fucking horrifically uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> and I, I wore them to, uh, an older gay couple's wedding and uh they were they were a hit oh, so that's incredible i can only imagine um and like heels are not that hard to walk in i don't oh, know if it's a, like i well also as somebody who has chronically broken their feet <laughs> what are you doing yeah no i have no i have no good responses for this question um i'm just worried I'm just about you brad treating my body like hell well, whatever. I mean, as long as you're enjoying yourself. Yeah, I, I try to. I need to see a photo of you in these heels. I'm sure they exist. You'll have to send me one. There's yeah, there's plenty. I uh, they're they're great at rugby tournaments um, because <laughs> like <laughs> nothing shocks people more. I can, yeah. Well, I I bet. So eventually, you get to the point where you you come out publicly uh, via a blog post. Is that right? On July 4th, yes. I know, yeah, uh, I know. I <laughs> I mean, USA, USA. I mean, proud to be an American. I it's it's interesting that <laughs> it's interesting that you decided to do it that way. I mean, walk me through the process of getting to that point. How how long after uh coming out to your parents did you write the post? So, um I came out to my parents and then like Two months later, started dating another guy. Um, this one was long distance, and uh, just a what a what a wonderful sweetheart for putting up with 
me. Um, he lived in uh, Dallas, and I was living in Denver in Denver at the time. So, so going to see him a bunch, and um, I made the choice to move to San Francisco, which uh, isn't exactly the greatest choice uh, to move further away. Um, so, uh, I mean, it, it's Tuan is is a hundred percent on me, but um, we broke up. He broke up with me. And, um, it was another point where like, you know, I was out to a couple people. I had actually introduced him to a number of friends of mine. Um, and it was really, you know, the first relationship that I had was not, uh, particularly healthy just cause like I wasn't in a good place, but, um, I found somebody that like treated me really well. And it was, it was such a like normal, good relationship. Um, and I just like, couldn't deal with that. Yeah. Um, and so I ran away from things like I'm, I'm quite good at doing. Uh, and it was another point in my life where I was like, man, I constantly, I still in San Francisco, I went into gay bars and I always had a hat on so that I could pull like the brim down just in case I ran into somebody that like, cause if I ran into somebody at a gay bar, like there was going to be a problem. It, it logically doesn't make any sense. But um, was really just struggling with the fact that um, I was always checking myself. I was always, you know, when we went to family events, it was always like, you know, are you dating anybody? Like uh, I work with my, I don't know, like trying to get introduced to women, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. um, I just got to a point where I felt like I didn't know how my college teammates were going to deal with it. Um, a couple of them knew, but like largely I had not come out to most of them. Um, and I felt like it was just this giant weight that I was always dragging around with me. Um, the last straw was kind of the, the last straw was I met, um, Mark Bingham's mom who, um, the Bingham cup is the, the gay rugby world cup. Um, he passed away in, uh, nine 11 and she just shared with me that, um, her son was here for, for such a short amount of time. And, um, she just like hates the fact that he ever felt like he had to, he couldn't be his whole self with her. Um, because like there was some risk of, of retaliation or, or, or I don't know. Um, so I, I knew that I wanted to come out. I wrote this like 6,000 word. It was so long. <laughs> And I sent it to one of my football teammates who I came out to and was like, Hey man, I, I like, I need to tell the world and God bless him. He read the whole fucking thing and was like, Hey man, that was great. But, um, I don't think people are going to care as much as (laughs) you do or (laughs) something like that. He was like, notes and your coming out letter. Yeah, I got, I got edited, uh, pretty, pretty drastically. Um, okay. And so I, I pared it down and like, I'd been talking about this for like a month and a half. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And, um, on the morning of July 4th, uh, I said like, that was my last date for, um, doing this. And I just like chickened out and my roommate at the time, like went on my computer and was like, I'm fucking publishing this, like we're done. And I was like, you can't do it. And she was like, I mean, you can do it. You need to do it. And, uh, so she, she got me to finally like rip the bandaid. Um, and I was so, I, again, still so scared at how the sports world in particular react. Um, I turned off my phone. I like closed my computer. 
uh, I went to the beach to just like have a panic attack run and uh, didn't – I knew that like I would come back and, and things would have changed for me. Um, I never had any inkling – like, I don't know why, but I just assumed there would be like some bad things in there. And I came back to just so much love and acceptance. Um, and then like, I'm sure proceeded to get like so drunk out of happiness for the first time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I had, I had, I had good people around me to force me. Um, well, you know, yeah, I, that's I almost important. got there and I needed a couple people to drop kick me over the, the ledge. I mean, do you think about where you would be in your life if, if football had worked out differently? Do you think you would be an out gay man now if, if you had made an NFL roster? Uh, that's a, yeah, I do think about that. I, um, I think that there have been enough people who have, uh, taken the step forward that they would have given me the freedom eventually to, to consider, um, and to think about being out. Um, I think about all the guys, you know, there, there are closeted players in the NFL right now, and I don't think it's their duty to come out and, and bring extra scrutiny on them, especially given that it's not exactly the most, um, progressive place of employment. Um, I, I worry that I would have definitely continued down the route of like find a woman to marry, try and have kids just because that's what I was supposed to do. And uh, I'm pretty good that when I get a playbook, um, I learn and execute that playbook. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I I don't know. Um, I really I think that I don't I don't know that everything happens for a reason, but um, I am grateful that. I got a reprieve from football, um, from sports that I could take up three years and think about who I was and figure out what I wanted. So let's talk about what you're doing now, because, uh, I think certainly a shift, uh, unlike any other that I've at least spoken to, uh, about on this podcast, I I want you to walk me through, uh, everything that you're doing now, because, uh, I don't quite understand how it came to be, <laughs> and I, I, I think it's fascinating and very cool. So I, I want to uh, I want to learn more. So so tell me about what you're up to now. So uh, I founded a company that's focused on um, making sexual wellness easier to attain, specifically for, um, as we say in like jargony ways, the gender and sexual minorities. Um, I was pushed into the space. Uh, I, I've been interested in my own process of getting sexual health care. Um, I was really lucky. I've been, I've been, I don't want to be like overly graphic, but I was making some bad decisions in uh, San Francisco for my sexual health and, um, or I was making risky choices. Uh, and I woke up one morning and, um, it burned when I went to pee and my mind immediately jumped to like, I had such bad sexual education, especially for um, LGBTQ sexual education, that I just assumed I had AIDS. Like the most irrational jump I could make. I mean, it's irrational. It's. I mean, it's. It is seemingly irrational, I guess. But it's you know, in in talking to you and thinking about what you're doing now, it's it's something I've never spent that much time processing. Just the fact that in, in general, sort of sexual education and and education about sexual wellness for kids is is so bad and so poor and we know nothing but then especially to talk about what it means to be a gay man what it means to be queer that's certainly something we're not getting in school and you know you just sort of 
grow up trying to figure it out yourself unless you have some sort of figure in your life that will that will tell you about it. Uh, I think most kids probably don't know. So it, maybe it is irrational to have that fear in your mid-20s, but, it, you know, that is sort of the time when you, you have to sort of figure it out on your own. Yeah, I mean, my dad made sure I had condoms in college. Um, that was his his effort in, like, I don't know, showing me the way. Um, it was never something we would have talked about in my house. And it was also something that just like, it brought me so much, uh, internal shame. Um, you know, something that I think we really lack in gay culture specifically is just talking about how unsure and self-conscious we are about sex. It seems like we get a lot of signals that, um, everybody is sex positive and confident and having so much sex and it's so easy. Um, and the reality is like anytime we're naked, it's fucking scary. And when we're naked with uh, another person, like all of a sudden now, you know, me, especially I'm an, I'm an athlete. Like I have to perform. I have to, I have to live up to every expectation. Um, there was just, there was a lot of weight that was carried in it that was largely div- driven by um, a lack of education, a lack of feeling comfortable about even exploring the topic. And I think those, that confluence of factors made me, it just, it's always been something, not always for the past, you know, decade. Um, it's been something that's core to my journey of, of figuring out more about myself. And as I look back at like the opportunities I had, when I was freaked out in San Francisco, I had an older gay friend um, who was like, hey, let's take the day off work and go down to the clinic. Like, it's going to be okay. And they took great care of me and started me on this journey of having a fucking idea of what's going on with my body and and what I'm doing. Um, And they were able to introduce interventions. You know, they got me on um, PrEP, which is a, a HIV prevention drug super early. Um, you know, like 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm lucky to have had those moments in my life. I'm not sure. I don't know um, what my future would have been if I lived in a, a different city that didn't have those resources available for free um, with people that were just so well-trained when, when a scared 25 year old walks in the door, 24 year old walks in the door, like they just immediately knew the right things to say and what to do. Um and it was always just like such a powerful experience to be mm-hmm. met at a time when I was scared and just to have people that like both physically and and like verbally and emotionally just hugged me and were like, it's going to be okay. And it was a UTI. Like I didn't even have <laughs> – I didn't even have like something right. um, that needed to be treated. Um, but that experience stuck with me and, and I always felt like – uh, there have been a number of other occasions um, living here in New York, finding older gay men that sort of like taught me the ropes, were able to, to have conversations about me on topics that I was uncomfortable discussing. Um, and seeing the proliferation of um, health startups, just feeling like there, there was a huge um, hole for sexually active uh, queer people. And, you know, um, gay men and transgender people set the, we are the the leading edge of what's happening uh, in our culture sexually, um, both in like, we've always got the newest features in our apps for whatever you want to order. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, we currently have a sexual health crisis. Um, fortunately, 
you know, HIV is under control in many populations, but um, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, you know, they've all seen a huge rise in the last five years. And that was, that was evident first amongst the, the gay and um, transgender populations. And so um, I really do think that not only is there a, there a huge need, it's also something that like has been deeply important in my life um, where I've gotten, I've always ended up on the right side of things. Um, and that's not true for everybody. Uh, and that's deeply unfair. Um, so my goal is, is to make it so that other people have access to the services and the opportunities that I've had um, as I've gone through this like very weird journey over the last 10 years of my life. Yeah. So, so tell me sort of specifically what the company does and, and where its eyes are for the future. Yeah. So right now um, we have a product where the, the very first company to package safer sex uh, products. So condoms and lubes with uh, HIV prevention medication. Um, our goal is to broaden that out into include both uh, HIV positive medication um, and then also start to bring other services that uh, people have to regularly get or products. Uh, so bringing in um, STI testing, at-home STI testing, uh, HPV screening, um, both vaginally and, and rectally, and then getting into um, products that you know most people still don't use lube, which just blows my mind uh, for the gay men who are listening to this episode stop using spit and go by lube. <laughs> uh, and also, you know, I think the biggest, I like to talk about prep. Um, prep means pre-exposure prophylaxis. It is used in the medical community to refer to a set of drugs that prevent HIV from being able to populate, um, in an unaffected person's bloodstream. And I think what we miss out of that is that there are a bunch of other things that we can be doing before we have sex that reduce our risk. Um, and, and one of the big things that we never talk about is literally talking to somebody, um, yeah. making it okay to ask somebody how many partners they've had or share how many partners you've had to share when you got tested last. Um, you know, I'm not shy about the fact that I've gotten STIs and I've gotten treated, uh, testing is a part of my life. I do it every three months because, uh, not only does it make me feel just safe and good to know, um, but I also take some pride in the fact that that's something that's good for my community. Um, and that's a, that's, that's the ultimate goal is that people who come to Calamos for whatever reason, for their Truvada or Descovy, for condoms or lubes, um, what we want them to walk away with eventually is comfortability talking about their sexual health in a way that's not um, filled with shame or uh, guilt, but it, it's something that, you know, things happen. We get colds. We don't shame people for getting colds. We shame people for getting chlamydia and then people don't get fucking tested. And now, you know, 10% of our population in New York has chlamydia. Um, we can solve this by, by changing the way we talk and think about it. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna like, I don't want to get on my pedestal and start ranting too much, but no, that's no. the dream. Well, yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, it's like, you know, you talk about whether or not things happen for a reason and, and, you know, not that I'm amped about the fact that, you know, your football career was cut short, but 
you know, I have to say it's you're clearly so passionate about this and your life has been set in this direction, just both in terms of your sexuality and what you're doing professionally now, where, you know, you're living so openly and honestly and as such a free man. I think it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, like I was saying, who knows where you'd be right now? There, There is no way to know if things had worked out differently. But, you know, I, I think you're such an asset to this community. And I, uh, you know, I wish you all the best with all the stuff that you're doing, because like you said, I, I think it just it stems from conversation and then it stems uh, and that, you know, sort of leads to action. So I think what you're doing is is remarkable. And, and this new step that you've kind of taken, this turn in your life is is uh, is very exciting. So uh, I congratulate you on that. Thank you. I mean, it's um, that means a lot. It's it, I don't know where I would have ended up um, and who knows why anything happens. But uh, I think one thing that I'm thankful for is I don't know how to say this. Uh, you might have to clean this up. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunities that everybody keeps giving me when I fuck up, you know, um, and I'm thankful that I found people around me who are willing to listen as I, as I figured it out, I don't have all the answers and I certainly haven't figured out, uh, everything about being a, an openly gay man, but, um, yeah, I feel really, I feel lucky. That's the, to be able to do this for me, but also for other people is something that like I wouldn't have gotten if I was a football player. Um, I wanted to be, you know, really single-minded. Um, I wanted to, to have the life that other people had without figuring out the life I wanted to have. And uh, that's been made possible by at every turn when I, when I did something bad or, um, wasn't like, didn't necessarily make the best choice to have people around me who said, you know, that's okay. Like we keep moving forward or in the case of like coming out, having everybody just be like fucking awesome, man. Um, so yeah. Well, the, you know, no, go ahead. Finish. I was going to say, I don't have a, I don't have a fancy bow around that one, but, um, <laughs> well, not everything needs a bow, right? I mean, we get, uh, you know, things are, things are best when they're messy. You can probably attest to that. Uh, well, maybe did that come out wrong now that we we're talking about, <laughs> Uh, you know, sexual wellness. Eh, what are you going to do? But, you know, I, I think there's, yeah, there's beauty in sort of living a bit of a messy life and sort of owning up to that and, and understanding that and learning from all of that, you know, not even, not even to call them mistakes, but, you know, sort of these opportunities for growth. I think that you're, you're, uh, is that, was that smart or was that? Yeah. Learning opportunities, opportunities Op- for growth. I That's- call my mistakes learning opportunities for growth, Brad. I don't know about you. I'm taking that. Please do, please do. Uh, but no, I mean, I think you're you're uh, you're an example of of what can happen when you uh, when you take the plunge and you uh, you really try to learn about yourself. I think it's a beautiful thing. So, like I said, congratulations, and I'm 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 happy to uh, to call you a friend now, and that you're a part of this this great sort of community that we find ourselves in. Yeah, thank you. This is uh, this has been great. I um, I. Uh, like I said, I love podcasts, so I'm going to be like really nervous to listen to this because. Well, listen, I have uh, to listen to them all the time. <laughs> I don't know what I said. This has felt like a blackout, but. Uh, no, you've been you great. Having, having me on here. Of course, man. This has been great. And uh, I look forward to everything that you're going to do in the future. Awesome. Thank you.
everybody, that is it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, of course, to Brad for his time. I mean, what a story, right? I, I think we can all learn something from Brad. You know, he, he's doing something now that he is so passionate about. And you can just tell from talking to him how much he cares about what he's doing and how grateful and thankful he is for the people that have paved the way for him. I think we can all learn something from that. I just think it's really inspiring and really great. And it, it was such a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, so thanks for listening. Until next time, same team, Daniel Trainer signing off. Bye.